from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. My name is David Rubenstein, and I have the honor of introducing John Lewis, and I'll try to be very, relatively brief. Uh, in my view, the word hero is one of the most overused words in the English language. People often say other people are heroes when, in fact, they probably really aren't. But that word is appropriately used for John Lewis, perhaps more so than anybody in our country today, because his life has been one of complete heroism. A hundred and fifty years ago yesterday, Abraham Lincoln signed the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. A hundred and fifty years ago yesterday. He actually issued it on January 1, 1863. But as we know, all it did was to free some slaves in the South. Later, the 13th Amendment were necessary, was necessary to end slavery. But the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment didn't solve the problem. The Jim Crow laws that rose in the South really led to a segregation that this country is, should be ashamed of and was ashamed of. Not until the 1950s and 1960s was a lot done by it, about it. One of the people who led the effort to get rid of the Jim Crow laws and to make sure that our vision of making sure that all humans are treated equal and are treated equally in our country, that occurred with the efforts of people like John Lewis. John Lewis was a young organizer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And when he did so, he was working in the interstate, working in the South to make sure that the, inter, that the interstate bus terminals were desegregated. He was arrested 24 times in the course of that effort, beaten savagely many times. He became a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was brought to Washington to help lead the March on Washington on this mall in November of 1963. He was one of the six civil rights speakers who gave that speech that day, by far the youngest. After that speech and the other things that happened and subsequent to that, the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed, but that wasn't adequate either. And John Lewis began the effort once again to develop voting rights for all Americans. And he marched in Selma and was, savage, was savagely beaten, and his head was fractured as he tried to move peaceably across the bridge in Selma. But from that time on, he became clearly the symbol of civil rights nonviolent activity in the United States. And because of that, activity that John Lewis stood for, the Congress ultimately made changes in the law, and ultimately we've moved to a society where equal treatment is much more readily the case than it was before. Since John Lewis left the civil rights movement actively, he became a member of Congress and has been a member of Congress for 25 years and has been viewed by many as the conscience of Congress. He now is the senior member of the Georgia delegation. He's written an autobiography before about his times as a civil rights leader. He's written a new book that I think everybody will enjoy, and it's my pleasure to introduce one of our great national heroes and civil rights leaders, John Lewis. Thank you so much. David, thank you for those kind words of introduction. Mr. Librarian, thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your vision. Thank you for never, ever giving up or never giving in. Thank you for keeping the faith.
I'm so delighted and so pleased to be here this afternoon to see each and every one of you. Now you heard that I didn't grow up in a big city like Washington, D.C., or Baltimore, or Silver Springs, or Rockville, Alexander, uh, Atlanta. I grew up on a farm in rural Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of a little place called Troy. My father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But back in 1944, when I was only four years old, my father had saved $300, and with the $300, he bought 110 acres of land. And on this farm, there was a lot of cotton and corn, peanuts, hogs, cows, and chickens. On the farm, it was my responsibility to care for the chickens. And I fell in love with raising chickens like no one else could raise chickens. Now, do any of you know anything about raising chickens? Can I see the hands of those who know something about raising? Okay, well, let's have a little fun here this afternoon. <laughs> but as a little boy from there, sitting here and was set, and to mark the fresh egg with a pencil and place them on his set, under the setting hand and wait for three long weeks for the little chicks to hatch. Some of you may be saying, now, John Lewis, why do you mark those fresh eggs with a pencil and place them under the setting hand? Well, from time to time, another hen would get on that same nest and there would be some more eggs. And you had to be able to tell the fresh eggs from the eggs that were already under the setting hand. Do you follow me? You don't follow me, it's okay. It's all right. When these little chicks were hatched, I would take these little chicks and put them in a box with a lantern, raise them on their own, or just give them to another hen, and get some more fresh eggs and mark them with a pencil, and place them under their setting hen, and encourage the setting hen to stay in the nest for another three weeks. When I look back on it, it was not the right thing to do. It was not the moral thing to do, the most loving thing to do, and the most nonviolent thing to do, to keep on cheating on the setting hands. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember, especially in the Midwest and in the South, we used to get the Susan Roebuck catalog. Any of you old enough to remember the Susan Roebuck catalog? Really? Let me see the hands of those. Those are very good. Uh, that big book, that thick book, that heavy book, some people call it the ordering book, other call it the wish book. I wish I had this, I wish I had that. But I just kept on wishing. I was never quite able to save $18.98 to order the most inexpensive hatch or incubator from the Sister Robux store. So we just kept on cheating on these setting hens and fooling these setting hens. As a little child, about eight or nine years old, I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to preach the gospel. So from time to time, with the help of my brothers and sisters and my fresh cousins, we would gather all of those chickens together in the chicken yard. <laughs> like you were here under this large tent. And we would have church. My brothers and sisters and fresh cousins would line the outside of the yard, but they helped make up the audience and the congregation along with the chickens. And I would start speaking or preaching, and when I look back on it, some of those chickens would bow their heads. Some of those chickens would shake their heads. They never quite said amen. 
But I am convinced that some of those chickens that I preached to in the 40s and the 50s tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listen to me today in the Congress. <laughs> As a matter of fact, some of those chickens were just a little more productive. <laughs> at least, at least, at, at least they produce eggs. Well, that's enough about that story. But one thing those chickens did, they taught me patience. They taught me to wait and not get in a hurry. Just wait. Be patient that the eggs will not hatch in one or two or three days. But it was going to take three long weeks for those eggs to hatch. The civil rights movement taught me patience. Never give up, never to give in, to never give out, but to always keep your eyes on the prize. So this little book, Across That Bridge, is about patience, about study, hope, truth, love, and reconciliation. Now, when I was growing up there in rural Alabama, and we visit the little town of Troy, visit Montgomery, visit Tuskegee, and later as a student in Nashville, Tennessee, and later living in Atlanta. I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, color waiting. But as a little child, I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, and great-grandparents why, and they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. But in 1955, at the age of 15, I heard of Rosa Parks. I heard of Martin Luther King, Jr. In 1957, at the age of 17, I met Rosa Parks. The next year, in 1958, at the age of 18, I met Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The action of Rosa Parks, the people in Montgomery, and the teaching and leadership of Dr. King inspired me to get in the way, to get in trouble. So more than 50 years, I've been getting in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. So across that bridge is really a lesson about getting in trouble, good trouble. And that's what I think in America today, we need more people to get in trouble, good trouble. If you believe in something that is so right, so dear, so necessary, you have to get in trouble. But before we got in any trouble as students, as young people, we studied. We just didn't wake up one morning and say we're going to go and sit in. We didn't just dream one day that we're going to go, come to Washington and go on a freedom ride, or that we were going to march on Washington as we did in 1963, that we were going to march from Selma to Montgomery as we did in 1965. We studied. We prepared ourselves as college students, as high school students in the city of Nashville. Every Tuesday night for an entire school year, a group of us would meet at 6.30 p.m., we stated what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa, what he accomplished in India. We stated the role in civil disobedience 
We studied the great religions of the world. We studied what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was all about. And we were ready. And we would be sitting in, or standing in at a theater, or going on a freedom ride, and we would be beaten. We would be jailed. But we didn't strike back, because many of us grew to accept nonviolence as a way of living, as a way of life. That is better to love than to hate. We wanted to build a beloved community. We wanted to be reconciled. So this book is also about reconciliation. To give you one example, I first came to Washington, D.C., May 1st, 1961, to go on something called a Freedom Ride. Thirteen of us, seven whites and six African Americans. We came here on May 1st. We studied. We participated in nonviolent workshops. And I will never forget it, on the night of May 3rd, someplace in downtown Washington, we went to a Chinese restaurant. Now, growing up in rural Alabama, going to school in Nashville, I'd never been to a Chinese restaurant before, never had a meal at a Chinese restaurant. But that night, we had a wonderful meal. The food was good. And someone said, you should eat well because this may be like the last apple. The next day on May 4th, 1961, we left Washington, traveling from here on our way to New Orleans. The first incident occurred in Charlotte, North Carolina. Back in 1961, black people and white people couldn't be seated together on a Greyhound bus or a trailway bus, couldn't share the same waiting room, the same restroom facilities. Segregation was the order of the day. But in Charlotte, North Carolina, in May of 1961, a young African-American man entered a so-called white waiting room. He went into the waiting room and later into the barber shop and tried to get a shoe shine. He was arrested and taken to jail. The next day, he went to trial, and the jury dismissed the charges against him. On that same afternoon, my seatmate, a young white gentleman, by the name of Alba Bigelow, wonderful man from Coscarp, Connecticut. The two of us tried to enter a so-called white waiting room. We were met by a group of young men who beat us and left us lying in a pool of blood. The local authorities came up and wanted to know whether we wanted to press charges. We said no. We believe in peace and love and nonviolence. That was May 9, 1961. In February 09, less than a month after President Barack Obama had been inaugurated as president, one of the young men that had attacked us came to my congressional office here on Capitol Hill and said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people that beat you. Will you forgive me? I want to apologize. His son had been encouraging his father to go out and seek out the people that he had attacked. 
I said, yes, I accept your apology. I forgive you. His son started crying. He started crying. I started crying. He gave me a hug. I hugged him back. Since then, I've seen this gentleman three other times. He called me brother, and I called him brother. That's what the movement was all about, to be reconciled. So this book is about reconciliation. It is saying in the final analysis that we are one people, that we are one family, that we are one house, that we must be reconciled, that those of us who live here in America, those of us who live on this little piece of real estate, must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we were pairs as fools, as Dr. King suggested. The late A. Fuller Randolph, who was the dean of the civil rights movement, a dean of black leadership, who had the whole idea about the march on Washington almost 50 years ago, was said from time to time, maybe, maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this great land in different ships. But we're all in the same boat now. So in the final analysis, it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. It doesn't matter whether we're Democrats or Republican. It doesn't matter whether we're straight or gay. It doesn't matter whether we're Jewish or Muslim or Christians. We're one people. We're one family. We're one house. That's what the struggle been about. This little book, Across That Bridge, is saying, in effect, that our struggle is not a struggle to redeem the soul of America. It's not a struggle that lasts for one day, one week, one month, one year, or one lifetime. Maybe it would take more than one lifetime to create a more perfect union, to create the beloved community, a community at peace with itself. Now, you heard David tell you that I did get arrested a few times. And young people, young children come up and say, how can you be in the Congress and you got arrested? <laughs> uh, you violated the laws. And I was said, they were bad laws. They were customs, they were tradition, and we wanted America to be better. We wanted America to live up to the Declaration of Independence, live up to our creed, make real our democracy, take it off of paper and make it real. So when I got arrested the first time, this book is saying that I felt free, I felt liberated, and today, more than ever before, I feel free and liberated. You know, Abraham Lincoln, 150 years ago, freed the slaves. But it took the modern-day civil rights movement to free and liberate a nation. Now, I know some of you are asking, where did you get the name uh, across that bridge. Where do you get the toddler from? Life lesson and a vision for change. Just think a few short years ago, since this is an election year, hundreds and thousands and millions of people 
in the American South, the 11 states to the old Confederacy, from Virginia to Texas, could not register to vote simply because of the color of their skin. People stood in lines. You take a state like the state of Mississippi in 1963, 1964, 1965, had a black voting age population of more than 450,000, but only about 16,000 were registered to vote. There was one county in my native state of Alabama, Lowndes County in the heart of the black belt. Black population were more than 80%, but there was not a single registered black voter in the county. In the little town of Selma, Alabama, only 2.1% of blacks of voting age were registered to, to vote. People were beaten. People were jailed. People were asked to pass a so-called literacy test. On one occasion, a man was asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap. On another occasion, a man was asked to count the number of jelly beans in a jar. There were African-American lawyers, teachers, and doctors college professors failing the so-called literacy test. Had to pay a poll tax, and we had to change that. Hundreds and hundreds of people had been arrested and jailed. In 1964, my old organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, better known as SNCC, organized something called the Mississippi Summer Project. Thank you. Some of you remember. For more than a thousand students, black and white college students came south and worked. The summer night of June 21st, 1964, three young men that I knew, two young white men, Andy Goodman, Mickey Scherner, one young African-American man, James Shaney, went out to investigate the burning of an African-American church. They were stopped, arrested, taken to jail, and later that same evening they were taken from jail, turned over to the Klan, where they were beaten, shot, and killed. And I tell young people all the time that these three young men didn't die in Vietnam. They didn't die in the Middle East. They didn't die in Eastern Europe. They didn't die in Africa or Central or South America. They died right here in our own country trying to get all of our people to become participants in the democratic process. And right now there is an attempt on the part of several members of the Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, to get the Postal Service to issue a stamp in honor of these three young men. So we had to organize, we had to mobilize, we had to speak up, we had to speak out. We had to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. After Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had received the Nobel Peace Prize in December 1964, after President Johnson had signed the Civil Rights Act in July 1964, Dr. King had a meeting with the president when he returned from Europe and told him we need a voting rights act. 
And President Lyndon Johnson told Dr. King in so many words, we don't have the votes in the Congress to get a voting rights act passed. I just signed a civil rights act. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came back to Atlanta. He met with a group of us and said we were right that act. My organization, SNCC, was already involved in Selma. In Selma, the heart of the black belt, the only time a person could even attempt to register to vote were the first and third Mondays of each month. You had to go up a set of steps through a set of double doors and get a copy of the so-called literacy test. And very few people were able to pass that so-called literacy test. Few days late February 1963, 1965. There was a protest in Marion, Alabama, about 35 miles from Selma. Marion, Alabama is the hometown of Mrs. Martin Luther King Jr. An incident occurred. A young man by the name of Jimmy Lee Jackson tried to protect his mother. He was shot in the stomach by a state trooper, and a few days later he died at a local hospital in Selma. And because of what happened to him, we decided to march from Selma to Montgomery. So on Sunday, March 7, 1965, about this time of day, 600 of us had participated in a nonviolent workshop. We lined up in twos to walk the 50 miles from Selma to Montgomery to dramatize to the nation and to the world that people of color in Alabama and throughout the South wanted to register to vote. During those times, during those days, I had all of my hair and a few pounds lighter. <laughs> I was wearing a backpack before it became fashionable to wear backpacks. And in this backpack, I had two books. I thought I was going to be arrested, and I was going to go to jail, so I wanted to have something to read. I had an apple and I had an orange, one apple and one orange. I wanted to have something to eat. At tooth, toothpaste and toothbrush, thought I was going to be in jail with my friends, my colleagues and neighbors. I wanted to be able to brush my teeth. As we were crossing the Alabama River, my colleague walking beside me, a young man by the name of Jose William, said to me, John, can you swim? He saw all of this water down below. I said, no, Jose. I said, can you swim? He said, yes, a little. We continued to walk. We came to the highest point on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Down below, we saw a sea of blue Alabama State Troopers. We continued to walk. We came within hearing distance of the state troopers. And a member of the state troopers identified himself and said, I'm Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers. This is an unlawful march. It will not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your church. And Jose Williams said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. And before we can tell the people back behind us or send words to kneel and pray. The trooper said, Officers advance, troopers advance. These men put on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks. 
tramping us with horses, and releasing the tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick, had a concussion at the bridge. I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death. 47 years later, I don't recall, I don't know how I made it back across that bridge, but I do remember in, back in that little church that we had left from. The church is full to capacity. More than 2,000 people on our side trying to get in to protest what had happened on the bridge. And someone asked me to say something to the audience. And I stood up and said, I don't understand it. How President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam and cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desires to get registered to vote, to march from Selma to Montgomery. 17 of us were hurt and admitted to a local hospital. The next day, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Selma to visit with us. And he said that he had asked religious leaders to come to Selma. Tuesday, March 9th, more than a thousand priests, rabbis, nuns, and ministers came and walked across that bridge. Walked across that bridge. So we made a lot of progress, but there's still other bridges that we need to cross to create a more perfect union, to create the beloved community, to redeem the soul of America. But because of that day, President Lyndon Johnson came to the Congress on March 15th and made one of the most meaningful speeches that any American president had made in modern time on the whole question of civil rights, of voting rights. We call it the We Shall Overcome speech. He started that speech off that night by saying, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and for the destiny of democracy. He went on to say, at time, history and fate meet in a single place in man unending search for freedom. So it was more than a century ago at Lexington and Concord. So it was at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. He condemned the violence in Selma, introduced the Voting Rights Act, and before he concluded that speech, he said, and we shall overcome. I looked at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We were watching Lyndon Johnson and listened to him together in the home of a local family in Selma. I looked at Dr. King and he started crying, and we all started crying to hear the President of the United States using the theme song of the Civil Rights Movement, and we shall overcome. There are other bridges to cross, and we must cross them with faith, hope, love, and peace, and be reconciled with our brothers and sisters, because we are one family, we're one house. We all live in the same house, the American house, the world house, and continue to cross that bridge. Thank you very much.
my understanding that we have some time for a few minutes of questions. I believe that Mike's in the... Uh, Yes, sir. Hi, Congressman Lewis. Enjoyed your remarks. What to you is on the unfinished agenda, what still needs to be done to, to finally solve some of the problems? One of my concerns is seems the national neglect of the problem of the inner cities and the ghettos and the racial isolation and the concentrations of poverty that nobody seems to talk about. What do you think should be done in that area and other parts of the national agenda uh, to deal with the remaining problems? Well, I think it's important for all of us, not just the, uh, the, the government, but organizations, uh, the educational institutions, uh, the business community, people in government, um, to create what I call a coalition of conscience, similar to the coalition that we had during the 60s, and, and pull and, and work together. There's still too many people that have been left out and left behind. And they're not only in the inner city, but on, in, on farms and uh, rural America. There are just too many human beings in this country, the wealthiest country in the world, that live in the inner city of poverty. That's not right, it's not fair, and it's not just. And if we fail to do something about it, history will not be kind to us. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. We uh, passed each other on a plane coming out of Atlanta. I looked at you. You looked at me. I said, thank you. But I never had an opportunity to say thank you for what? My life was bookmarked between the two meetings that changed your life. Had you not stood where you stood on that bridge, had you not made the choices that you made, my life and so many other lives would have been so much different 1975, when I graduated from high school, I was encouraged to go to college, major in home economics, because there was a shortage of domestics in Westchester County. I had a choice because of the choice you made. I went on to Tuskegee, graduated, became an officer in the Air Force, a lawyer, a writer. I wrote about you in the Civil Rights Movement, and today I work for the Department of Veteran Affairs. I've worked as a policy analyst for homeless veterans as well as performing military outreach. And it would not have been possible had you not opened the doors you opened. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Represent yes, ooh, Representative Lewis, thank you for your words this afternoon. Um, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, unfinished business items was pursuing economic justice. What would you advise for young people today to pursue um, economic justice in today's world, given all the obstacles that are out there, many young college students who are graduating without jobs, um, and the growing and vast inequality that persists in America, 
what can young people do to pick up that unfinished agenda item and, and see it through? Well, the most important thing that young people can do right now, at this moment, this junction, and not just young people, but all of us, get involved, be engaged, and during this election year, vote. 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 Uh, I, I said it so many times, and, and I'm not saying you go out and vote for this person or for that person, but the vote is precious. It's almost sacred is the most non-violent non tool that we have in a democratic society, and we have to use it. Use it, and use it for good. It controls everything that we do in a society such as ours, from the time that we're born until the time that we die. And then I would say that we should encourage all of our children, all of our young people, to receive the best possible education. Education is still the great equalizer. When I was growing up in rural Alabama, long before I crossed the bridge in Selma, as a young child, we had very few books, and I love books. My wife is a librarian. But we, we had old radio, much later we did get a television, but that was much later, I was off to college before we got a television. But I tell you, you can travel, you can learn, and I had a wonderful teacher in elementary school who said, read my child, read my child. And I tried to read everything. We didn't have a subscription to the local newspaper, but my grandfather had one. And when he would finish reading his newspaper each day, we would get that newspaper and read it. So I kept up with the drama going on in Montgomery. I kept up and followed what was happening in Little Rock in 1957 at the age of 17. So this day and age, young people can travel. We didn't have a website. I, I hadn't heard of the internet. And today you talk about iPad and iPod and cellular telephone. We didn't have any of that. Not my generation. But we used what we had to bring about a nonviolent revolution. And we got to encourage young people to use the tools and the instrument they have, all of us, to do good and not let any of our brothers and sisters or any group be left out or left behind. Hi, I'm an undergraduate at American University, and I'm currently taking a course called Oral History of the Civil Rights Movement with Professor Julian Bond. And I've just been so inspired by all the studying that we've done of the incredible actions that you and so many other people took during the Civil Rights Movement. But we've also done a lot of discussion amongst my classmates about what we consider is our lacking education in Civil Rights Movement history while we were in um, public school, private school, anything like that. So I was wondering, um, if you think there's any work left to be done with sort of documenting the incredible things that happened during that time and educating today's youth about the struggles that America went through during that time period. Well, I think it's important for uh, all of our schools, uh, elementary, middle school, but even uh, kindergarten level, really to teach young people about what happened and how it happened. There are a group of students 
that come from California and other uh, states uh, to see me from time to time in Atlanta. There's one American History High School teacher, something called Sojourn, and they bring groups of 100 high school students to Atlanta, then they go to Tuskegee, to Montgomery, to Selma, to Birmingham, to Jackson, to Little Rock, to Memphis, and then they return. And since 1999, they brought more than 6,000 in groups of 100, and I've spoken to every single group except for one. As a matter of fact, with one group, I spoke to them in Atlanta, then I surprised them with their teacher and walked across the bridge with them. I showed up and walked across that bridge with them. So it is important. A few, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago now, I should say, I was traveling and speaking to a high school student in, uh, in Germany. And I was so impressed, I was so moved, so inspired, that many of the young people in, in, in the high schools and, and towns and cities in Germany knew more about the civil rights movement than a lot of young people in America. We cannot let that happen. We got to really be informed, and, and people should go on the trips. You know, one thing I've been doing for the past 12 years with a group called Faith in Politics, taking members of Congress, Democrats, Republicans, uh, conservatives, liberals, to Birmingham, to Montgomery, and to Selma to walk across that bridge. And several members have told me, and uh, one senator, uh, who's not the most liberal, said to me, he said, John, if I had been on this trip earlier, my voting record would be different. So when people study and, and visit and get a feeling, I think it helped educate us all and sensitize us all. Maybe one more question? Yes. Hi. Um, we're both undergraduates at Marymount University studying African American culture. And obviously, you've made great changes in our nation. But uh, what we were wondering is even with the laws in place at the time that did change our nation, how long did it take for the people to actually get used to it and starting to accept the changes? Well, many, many places. When the, when the laws, when the Congress passed the laws and the President of the United States signed the law, uh, people made the adjustment. And I think all, all across, it's, to me, it, it, it's unbelievable the attitudes of a lot of people. When I go back to the little place where I grew up, when I was growing up, I wanted to attend Troy, we're called Troy State. It's not Troy University, only 10 miles from my home. Submitted my application, my high school transcript. I never heard a word from the school. As I got elected to Congress, um, <laughs> they had uh, John Lewis Day in the little town. And the, the local banker and the local Coca-Cola balling company sponsored a parade through the little town. And the president of the university came up to me and said, Congressman Lewis, we understand you wanted to attend Troy years ago. Why don't you come back and we'll give you an honorary degree? 
Detroit University band led the parade through the town. So anyway, I went back for commencement, and uh, I have an honorary degree from the school today. And uh, they invite me back from time to time to speak, and I joke with the students, and I tell them, I got my uh, education from Troy the easy way. <laughs> and, and to give you a, another example, when I was growing up outside of Troy, when I was only about 16 years old, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went down to the library to try to get a library card. And I was told that the library was for whites only and not for colors. So I never went back there. I never went back to the Pike County Public Library in Troy, Alabama. And to July 5th, 1998, for book signing of my book, Walking with the Wind, in hundreds of blacks and white citizens showed up. We had food, wonderful program, and at the end of the program, they gave me a library card. <laughs> right. So it says something about the distance we've come and the progress we've made as a people in America. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.